1 Timothy this morning as we begin the pastoral epistles of Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, For those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Again, look at verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, we praise You. We we thank You for having preserved it, having written it down, having passed it along generation after generation that we might now read and know and study and learn and have revelation and have inspiration in our relationship with You. Father, as we begin the end of the letters of Paul, I pray, Father, that You will inspire us further in our walk with Jesus. That the Christian among us would, would know and love You more perfectly, Father, and would know and love both followers of Jesus and lost people in this world more passionately. I pray, Lord, that the Word would get through to our hearts and would pierce even those rough patches, Father. And give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and give us understanding of these things. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. So another September, another school year. Have you ever in your life, be honest now, balked at education. Have you ever in your school days uttered the words, what's the point of this? As my daughter Naomi did just last week, she was taking a math placement test, trying to work her way through this thing, and about halfway through she put the pen down, looked up at me and said, Dad, I don't need math. I'm going to (laughs) dance. I said, Naomi, you very well may dance, but you need math, pick up your pen. Education. I'd like to begin this morning actually with an encouraging back-to-school anthem. If I might read this to you, it first broke in late fall of 1979, a droning song that haunted FM radio, We Don't Need No Education. We Don't Need No Thought Control. No dark sarcasm in the classroom. Teachers, leave them kids alone. Hey, teachers, leave them kids alone. All in all, it's just another brick in the wall. Now you educators are about to throw something at me, I understand. That song, Another Brick in the Wall, part two from Pink Floyd's album, The Wall, was their only U.S. number one single. I mean, kids heard that and flocked to it. Yes, I were one of them. (laughs) I love the way it's written. We don't need no education. (laughs) 
But the infamously rebellious anti-establishment protest song was nothing new. This sentiment has been spoken generation after generation of people who think we don't need any more knowledge, we don't need more learning. Solomon said that. 3,000 years ago, he wrote in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12, My son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. But then he says this, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. And so as we come now to 1 Timothy this morning, it's not just another brick in the wall. As we've gone book by book through the Bible, it's interesting, I I was thinking even this morning as as I was waking and processing what we were going to talk about, how many books we've been through. And how perhaps when we first started our study through the Word, I might have thought that there would be some bricks in the wall. You know, there were a few books I had never taught through, I had never studied through, not not seriously, I had read through them. But books that I thought, I'm not sure how we'll get by that one, we'll do our best and kind of suffer through it to get to the good stuff. And I have discovered, as many of you have, that every single book is the good stuff. That this is not just about furthering our education but that the Word of God is living and active and powerful. The Bible itself, Isaiah 40 verse 8, tells us the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. Jesus Himself said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. You see, walls fall down, bricks crumble, but the Word of God stands Jesus said in John 5.39, you know, one of my favorite verses, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, Jesus says. And so with another school year upon us, and perhaps more bricks in the wall here and there, we continue on, not just with a book of education, we continue on with Jesus Christ. We continue to look for and to desire Jesus and to seek Him in the Word of God. And so we approach the pastoral epistles or letters of Paul. Three of them. First Timothy. Titus and 2 Timothy, and we're going to take them in that order because it falls chronologically. Three letters, two written to young Timothy in Ephesus, one letter written to the a little bit older Titus who is living and serving on the sprawling southern Greek isle of Crete. And so these, these letters are the sum of our study through this fall together. And each letter bears Paul's name. Each one begins with the Apostle's name. Of course, he had a Holy Ghost writer, but he is the one who who penned these letters. The Spirit of God inspiring each one. These are, these three, the last confirmed letters of the Apostle Paul. Now, I say they're the last. Those who wonder, well, did Paul write Hebrews? We'll talk about that when we get to Hebrews after we finish up the pastoral letters. But these are the last three that we know for certain that are confirmed to be letters written by Paul from Paul. Hebrews doesn't have a name attached to it, so there's there's assumption that we will make there, and we'll talk about those things later. But Paul wrote these three, and we're certain of this, unless of course you're a 19th or 20th century liberal scholar, then you may question whether or not Paul wrote this. Or perhaps you're an early uh, heretic like Marcion, Marcion was one who came along and disagreed. In fact, he had a kind of his own little canon of Scripture, and he left 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus out. He didn't want those three in his canon. Why? Because they disagreed with his false teaching. But by and large, Paul, as the author of these letters, has been accepted throughout church history. From the earliest days. In fact, if we traveled all the way back to as early as 170 to 180 A.D., All three of these letters were included in what was called the Muratorian Canon, 
which was one of the earliest lists we have of the accepted, inspired books of Scripture in the New Testament that was held there at the church in Rome. These three letters were included. A Clement of Alexandria and Irenaeus, a couple of early uh, Bible guys, both referred to these three letters at that time. Down in 117 A.D., Polycarp, who was a disciple of John himself, cited 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7 and 8 as inspired, as written by Paul. In 116 A.D., Ignatius of Antioch used direct phrases from these letters. And as early as 96 A.D., another Clement, a Clement actually mentioned in Scripture, we believe, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, Clement of Rome showed a familiarity with the pastoral epistles of Paul as a collection of letters that were being circulated in and among the churches. So we don't question or don't need to question who wrote these and who authored them, the author being, again, the Spirit of the living God. We can't place these letters anywhere in the book of Acts. And, of course, there's good reason for that, because all three appear to have been written after Paul's release from house arrest in Rome. You might recall at the end of Acts 28, Paul was in his own rented house, and he was working from there, and he was chained to a a centurion, to a guard, but ultimately would be released from that and would do some more traveling before being brought back into Rome around around 67 A.D. and there being executed. So this is all taking place. These three letters are letters written about things happening after Acts chapter 28. 1 Timothy and Titus were probably written very close together, maybe in the same week. I mean, maybe he wrote 1 Timothy and then wrote Titus and sent them both off at the same time. I mean, they both are very, very similar in terms of style and and content. Approximately 63 A.D. So if you're taking notes, you want to jot that down. 1 Timothy and Titus would have been written around 63 A.D. And then 2 Timothy. Oh, 2 Timothy, which has become one of my absolute favorite letters of Paul, if not my favorite letter that he wrote. That comes at the end. In 67 A.D. And as we read it, we'll see Paul wrote from death row. Paul wrote knowing that the end for him, the end of his life, was very near. He was about finished. He had run the race. He had finished the course. He had fought the good fight. And so 2 Timothy comes out of Paul's final imprisonment, his last much more severe imprisonment in Rome. He wasn't in a rented apartment the second time. The second time he was in a cell block. He was in a pit, in a dungeon. And so this letter comes out of that, 2 Timothy, around 67 A.D. And Paul would have been executed that year or perhaps in 68, depending on on tradition. The mood of the first two letters, 1 Timothy and Titus, is markedly different than the mood of 2 Timothy, which is much more profound just in terms of the position that Paul was in at that point in his life. The pastoral epistles are often the go-to letters, along with Ephesians, along with 1 and 2 Corinthians, for church organization. If people want to find out how are we supposed to do things, what is the church supposed to look like, what's the structure and the order, and the roles of people in the church, oftentimes these are the letters that we go to. However, if we do that, we miss the intent. Because you see, these three letters are not just a how-to-do church. In fact, while they are ecclesiastical, and we'll look at that, I mean, they they do deal with biblical roles of men and women. In fact, next week, come next week, we're going to have some fun with that one. 1 Timothy chapter 2 is going to be our subject for next week, and we'll go through the entire chapter, and we're going to look at the biblical roles of men and women as spoke by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul, and we're all going to have to deal with those. That'll be next week. I'm looking forward to that. I wanted to hit it early in the fall so we could devastate the church as quickly as possible and then move on. (laughs) Biblical roles of men and women. He talks about those explicitly here. He talks about church leadership. He he covers a a pastor's self-discipline. Church obligations. 
He gives instructions for the wealthy, a call to godly living, duties of older and younger believers, and even some vital last days analysis. So yes, there's church information to be found in these three letters. However, in these last days, more than in any other issue, the pastorals confront heresy in the church. These letters were written to Timothy and to Titus to head off and to fight back against heresy. Keep your finger in 1 Timothy and go back to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. The Apostle Paul is speaking here. And he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Who was Paul talking to when he said that? The elders of Ephesus. Ephesus is where Timothy was located when Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Paul turned out to be giving a prophetic word. That what he spoke to the elders of Ephesus at this point, around 60 A.D., he met them in Miletus. And at that meeting, a tearful meeting of goodbyes to Paul, because from there he was heading back to Jerusalem, and the elders of Ephesus loved Paul and knew that he was walking into the mouth of the lion. And at that point he said, look, after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in. After I leave, heresy is going to rise up. After I'm gone, you're going to face this. How did he know? It was a prophetic word, I'm convinced. Because it begins to come true. Now, just a few years later, that was 60, now around 63 A.D., Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying, Hey, Timothy, be on the alert. Beware, heresy is cropping up in Ephesus. And it's exactly what Paul warned was coming. And in these letters, we will hear Paul's strongest warnings yet against heresy, against false teaching, and against savage wolves in the church. What I'm saying is this. The pastoral epistles are not a soothing walk in the park. They are instead a serious warning for the flock. So let's begin. Let's look at this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Keep that in mind with heresy as the backdrop. Paul's concern against it and warnings of it. He writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. And before we get into any discussion or warning against heresy, we start right there. And this is absolutely key for all of us. And it brings me great comfort. And that is, and I'll give this to you in three parts this morning. Number one, our Savior and our hope. Our Savior and our hope. This is what we need to know before we deal with heresy. God is our Savior. Christ Jesus is our hope. That is the focus. He is the power. This church, this fellowship belongs to Him and not to any one of us. And His concern is greater by far than any of ours. We see this title, God our Savior. We see it just five times in 1 Timothy and Titus. Paul will say it. God our Savior, God our Savior. We'll see it one more time there at the close of the little letter of Jude, where Jude 25 says, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So, God our Savior, as a title, is written six times in the New Testament. It's interesting to me that it's also written six times in the Hebrew Scriptures. Six times to the Jewish people, God our Savior. Six times in the New Testament, God our Savior. What's the point? Well, six being the number of a man, 
What is it that a man needs more than anything else but God our Savior? God our Savior. Isaiah 43 verse 11 tells us that He is the Savior of humanity. God says, I, even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides Me. I mean, what do you look for in your life to save you? What do you look for to, to get by or to rescue you or deliver you out of a difficult situation? The Lord says, I'm it. I'm all you got. I am your only Savior. There is no Savior besides me. Says God the Father, Yahweh, I am it. I am the Savior. Now someone might say, what about Jesus? If God's the only Savior, what then about Jesus? You Bible students know exactly where I'm going with this. Watch this. Jeremiah chapter 14 verse 8 says, O hope of Israel, its Savior in time of distress. Hey, what does Paul say? God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. O hope of Israel, its Savior in time of distress. Why, listen, why are you like a stranger in the land or like a traveler who has pitched his tent for the night? Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 8. i got to read that again. Listen carefully. O hope of Israel, its Savior in time of distress, why are you like a stranger in the land or like a traveler who has pitched his tent for the night? Now when Jeremiah wrote that, what he was saying is, where are you, Lord? Why are you transient? Why is it like you've been here and, and now you're gone? I don't understand. But I wonder if Jeremiah wasn't stumbling into his very own prophecy. You see, God our Savior did come like a traveler who has pitched his tent for the night. John 1.14 tells us the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and the word dwelt is tabernacled, pitched his tent. That Jesus came, God in the flesh, and He did camp out here for a season. He did come and He did stay. God, our Savior, is Christ our hope. That Jesus is God and God is Jesus. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We've been over this many times, so I know you all understand this. But to say God is our Savior is to say Jesus is our Savior because God is the Word made flesh. God our Savior, Christ our hope. And listen, when heresy arises... When difficulties come up in the church, there is one Savior, there is one hope, and it is not you. And it is not me. And as I said earlier, I take great comfort in that. I take great peace in that. There were days early on in, in my ministry life when I, when I began to pastor and do things that, that things would come up and I would panic. I'm thinking, oh no, this is it. And it took years of of seasoning, really, and of God taking me through difficult things to show me, hey, I'm the Savior, I got this. You know, as much as we can mess it up, we are not smart enough to mess it up beyond the salvation of Christ our hope. He will do it. Our trust, our faith is first and foremost, it's in Him. He knows what He's doing. So what do we do when, when things begin to be said? When, when false teaching begins to rise, what do you do? Well, you don't knee jerk. You pray. You lean into God, our Savior, and Christ, our hope, because this is His deal. You focus on what He wants you to focus on. You talk about what He wants you to talk about. And understand this. I will stand against false teaching. I will speak out against even wonky teaching. But the victory is in Him. The hope is in Jesus. Christ will save His church. Period. So I want to encourage you all, don't put your hope in pastors. Don't think that a presbyter is going to be your Savior. Don't look to other people. You look to the Lord. Now we want to learn from and and honor and, and even love one another. But let's keep a right perspective at all times. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 tells us, Obey your leaders and submit. 
For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And so the shepherds of this fellowship will give an account for this fellowship. And shepherds, you better take that one seriously. I will give an account for what takes place here and for our part in what happens in the bridge. I will have to answer for wrong teaching. And don't think I don't think about that every time I open the Scriptures. I will have to account for divisive rhetoric. But I am assured of one thing, and that is this. Jesus Christ is our Savior and our hope. And this thing is not going to fall apart under His watch. He will save His church. Verse 2 going on, after saying God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, Paul says to Timothy, true child in faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy, he says, true child in the faith. So, secondly, note this. Not only God our Savior, Christ our hope, but secondly, Paul now turns to sons and helpers. Sons and helpers, when you face heresy, when false teaching rises in a church, we have a Savior, we have a hope. And we also have sons and helpers. As part of the deal, God has worked this into the church. Timothy, true child in the faith. Titus is another. And we can look at all the people that Paul worked with and that God worked in and through in the early days of the church. And he continues to do it that way today. And so Paul's writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2, he calls him Timothy, my beloved son. That's intense. That's a phrase that up until then was really held for the father and the son. God called Jesus my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And so now Paul takes that same phrase and applies it later on to Timothy. Oh, Timothy, my beloved son. Paul and Timothy had a very, very special Relationship, Almost a father-son relationship. Now on Paul's first missionary journey into Asia, he may have met this half-Jew, half-Greek. Timothy's mother was a Jew, his father was a Greek. And at that time, in, in that first missionary journey, we can assume that Paul met Timothy. We don't know for, for certain, but we know that he came into the town of Lystra, which is where Timothy grew up where he was based, where he lived with his mother and his grandmother and his father right there in Lystra. And we know that Paul was there. We know on his second missionary journey there that Paul found Timothy as a beloved son. It was at that point that Timothy joined Paul and never looked back. Timothy was not like John Mark. On the first missionary journey, John Mark, who joined Paul and Barnabas and traveled with them a certain distance but then ran home to Mama... Timothy joined Paul and continued on with him, he became a son and a helper in what I consider to be the most remarkable evangelistic effort of the church age. And that was through the Apostle Paul. Timothy was part of that. And I want you to think through the question this morning as we enter into this letter to Timothy, what would the church today be without the Timothys? Where would we be? I mean, maybe you read something like this, you hear about a relationship like Paul and Timothy, and you say, well, good for him and for Paul. You know, that, that's great for them. They had a, a great relationship. They had a, a powerful ministry, but I'm not like that. I'm not like those early power workers of the gospel. Okay, let me give you a quick description of these two power workers of the gospel. First of all, we've talked about Paul before, who has been described historically as a short, bald, hook-nosed, weepy-eyed, poor public speaker. This, this is what how Paul has been described. Now, I don't know if that's accurate or not. I, I can't say for certain. The Bible doesn't give us a physical description of Paul. But he's described that way by those who, who, who record these things historically. Interesting, what about Timothy? I mean, have you taken a good look at his school picture? Listen to this. First of all, Timothy chronologically was young. He was young. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Timothy was a young man. Now, youthfulness is the word nehotis in the Greek. And that word specifically was used of a young man of military age. Nehotis. 
What does that mean? Well, it means over 18. Between about 18 and 30 is what we're talking about here for Timothy's age. Usually it was someone in their 20s. Timothy was a millennial. Long before. (laughs) Timothy had been with Paul since 49 A.D. It's now 63 A.D. So if he was a teenager when he first met Paul and began to travel with them, he is now in his late 20s. So chronologically, Timothy is young. Emotionally, Timothy was tender. He was tender. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. It's believed that their last meeting was literally a meeting in passing as Paul was going one direction and Timothy was heading another direction, perhaps over to Ephesus. And apparently at this last meeting of of Paul and Timothy, it was very tearful. Paul says, as I recalled your tears, and the word tears there, the way it's used in the Greek, it appears to be just a weeping that Timothy lost it over Paul. Paul's going this way, Timothy that way, and it's unclear if they ever saw each other again on earth. Very poignantly, we get to 2 Timothy, and you will hear Paul writing to Timothy, asking Timothy to come to him. Please come, I have no one else. Paul says. There was definitely a deep emotional bond between them. We don't know if Timothy ever made it to Rome before Paul got executed. But we know that Timothy had some tearful moments. And so not only was he chronologically young, but he's emotionally tender. And thirdly, physically he's fragile. He had a tendency toward tummy trouble. Timothy did. 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul says, Use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Timothy was sickly. So if you look at this picture of Timothy, just what we draw out of the Scriptures, Timothy was a young, soft-hearted hypochondriac. (laughs) It's funny, I I looked it up. I was trying to remember the word. You know how sometimes you just have a mental block and I could not remember the word hypochondriac. I was a little sick that day. So I was having trouble... (laughs) Kidding. Having trouble remembering the word... And so I googled, what's the word for when you think you're always sick? And what do you call someone who thinks they're sick all the time? And the first thing that popped up was a member of Western society. (laughs) I thought that was great. Hey, listen, for all these hints at, at youthful, emotional, and even physical frailty, when there was trouble in Thessalonica, who did Paul send? 1 Thessalonians 3.2 We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the Gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. When there were crises in Corinth, who did Paul send? 1 Corinthians 4.17 I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in the church. When there were fears in Philippi, who did Paul send? Philippians 2.19 I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I might also be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. And now Paul has Timothy stationed in Ephesus to counter emergent heresies that were gaining ground. That is awesome. That's amazing to me. Do you realize what we're saying here is that every time there was a heretical crisis in the early church, Paul sent Timothy to deal with it. Paul sent Timothy into the fires of opposition. Which tells us for all these other things about Timothy, this kid was strong in the faith. This kid stood on the truth. It was not his own strength that made Timothy a marvel. It wasn't his own power. As I said, emotional, young, physically frail, and yet he stood on the Word of God. And Paul had absolute confidence. This is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. Who had absolute confidence in this young man that he would stand on truth. That Timothy, and and young people get this, that Timothy was not about Timothy. That Timothy was not concerned for his own wants or desires or needs or his own personal sensibilities. 
Timothy wasn't preaching Timothy. Timothy was preaching Jesus. Timothy was standing on truth. A lot of things are said about millennial people in this generation. And I'll tell you what, for all the negativity that's said about 20-somethings today, the potential is astounding. And I have told our 20-somethings, and I say again this morning, if you will stand on truth, you will not be stopped. You will, like Timothy, be unparalleled in the history of the church. Stand on the truth of the Word of God. Don't preach yourselves. Preach Jesus Christ. Bring the truth of the Word. Even though the entire world be flowing this direction, if the Word of God points that direction, that's the way you turn. And stand firm and stand strong. And for those of you who are older, let me ask you this question. Who is your Timothy? Who's your Timothy? Or sisters, perhaps, who's your Phoebe? Is there a a Titus in your circle? Or maybe a Chloe? I was thinking, who cares if Jake, our youth pastor, who cares if he can get some of his teenagers like him to bench press what he can bench press? Which I think he's up to like, what, like 125 now. Huge. (laughs) But listen, if Jake pours his Christ passion into a group of student leaders and they become as sons and daughters and helpers, true children in the faith, that will combat heresy. That will be powerful. Who are your Timothys? Who's the young person or younger person than you in your life? And see, a Timothy doesn't have to be a 20-something. A Timothy can be someone in their 30s and you're in your 40s. A Timothy can be someone in their 50s, but you're in your 70s. Do you understand that I view myself as a Timothy to some of our shepherds? Because I look at guys who have decades on me, who have years of life experience and biblical experience on me, and I go to them and I ask them and I listen to them, and I am motivated by them and encouraged by them because they have a wisdom that is beyond my years. So I am Timothy to some. And yet I have... Timothy's. People that I look to, that I want to see raised up and sent out. Who are your Timothy's? Don't just teach them to bench press. You know, if you want to make someone like you, make them like you in Christ Jesus. Why is it so important? Because the best way to fight heresy is not to have to. And if we are all looking to raise up Timothys and to pour the Word of God, we're training up Timothys, then heresy will not be an issue for us. Heresy and false teaching becomes an issue because the generation before did not teach the Word of God. I have also said this to our millennial generation. I take responsibility for any of the things going on, going wrong in the millennial generation. Because my generation and the generation prior, we have not taught the Word of God like we should have. And I mean that. And I take that on myself. Are we training up Timothys, sons and helpers, daughters who will take the Word into the world? Are we training them up first in the home? Are you talking about Jesus? Is the Bible open? Are you sharing this with your children? Are we doing it in the church? Is this a priority for us? To teach our young people. You know, every now and then, and this is not a commercial to get people to sign up to teach in children's ministry. But I'll tell you what, I'm not sure there's a more vital ministry than our teenagers and our children in this church. If you want to be involved in raising up Timothys. And in the schools. I used to look at it as as three prongs. The home, the church, the school. Boy, back in the founding of this nation, that was how the truth was taught. In all three locations. And what did the devil do? Took it out of the school. Decimated it from the home. And he's gone after the church. And the question is now, will the church fall when it comes to raising up Timothys? Because we're more interested in topical messages than in teaching the Word of God. This is absolutely vital. And watch this. Because unlike any of Paul's other letters, in these three, the heretical teachings Paul is warning against are not coming 
from the outside. Verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths. In Titus, he says, to Jewish myths. And there's something interesting there. In fact, I'll just tell you what it is. (laughs) If you've heard of the philosopher Philo, Philo, about 50 years before Jesus, was a Jew living in Greek, in Greece, in in, uh, the Greco-Roman culture. He very much took on the culture. And so he was a Greek philosopher who was Jewish. And what Philo did was he began taking the Hebrew Scriptures and allegorizing them. His great contribution to the Western world was taking the Old Testament and making it all a series of allegories rather than the truth. Jewish myth. And so it's thought by some that when Paul warns Titus and warns Timothy here about myths, and specifically in Titus it says Jewish myths, that he's referring to the teachings of Philo. Because Philo was the one who took the truth of the Word of God up to that point and made it all a bunch of metaphors and interesting stories. Oh, Jonah and the fish wasn't a real instance. Daniel wasn't a real prophet. Of course, you know, Jesus referred to both men as actual men and true stories. So Jesus believed it. So Philo comes along and perhaps he's the one Paul is referring to, or at least the teachings that that he had spawned in that place. Strange doctrines, myths, endless genealogies, which then Paul says, give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Now remember who Paul had forewarned. The Ephesian elders... And Paul is now writing to Timothy in Ephesus. Back in Acts chapter 20, verse 30, he had said, From among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So listen, we know that those in error were teachers in Ephesus. We know teaching was the task of the elders. And so putting two and two together, it is likely the heresy that Paul is concerned about was coming from among the elders themselves. That that was the source of the heresy, of the false teaching. The elders, the shepherds, the church leaders, Glenn's small group. Of course you know I don't think that. I am thankful. I am thankful for the teachers among our shepherds here. I'll tell you this much. I know these guys. I know my brother Jim. I've heard Jim teach. I know when Jim teaches, he teaches the truth. I'm thankful for that. I know my brother Glenn, and when he teaches, he's teaching the truth. I know when Doug is sharing, he's sharing the truth. I know that because we go over these things. When, when Peter talks about that, that the, the shepherds of the early church, we will be about the ministry of the word and prayer. That we will focus on those two things. That's what our shepherds focus on. That's what we spend the bulk of our time when we meet. We don't talk about the church kitchen. What we talk about is the word of God. We talk about scripture. We pour over doctrine. We try to understand these things and to be sure we're on the same page. And I invite and challenge them every single time the Bible is open here on Sunday mornings, on Wednesday nights, on any other time that they be here with Bibles open, listening and pouring over what I'm teaching to be sure that my teaching is sound as well. But in Ephesus, the shepherds may very well have been the source of the heresy. Ellis, in his book, Paul and His Opponents, said the following. He said, unlike the earliest letters, the opponents appear to include a considerable number of former co-workers whose heresy creates an especially bitter situation. Paul will call out those who he had worked with for the sake of the gospel as now teaching false doctrine. So when he lays these things out to Timothy talks about these these myths and these endless genealogies and these strange doctrines that give rise to mere speculation. The fear is, the concern is, what was happening in Ephesus was coming right through the shepherds themselves. 
So we have a Savior and a hope. And we have sons and helpers. And we have shepherds and heretics. Number three. Shepherds and heretics. So maybe you understand now why I said what I said earlier. That you don't put your hope in a shepherd. You don't look at an elder as your Savior. You don't assume that because I have my Bible open and I'm teaching, you don't assume that whatever I say is absolutely true or accurate. You challenge those things. You question those things. You pour over the Scriptures to be sure that what's being taught is the truth of God's Word because He's the Savior and the hope. We have shepherds and there are heretics. Zechariah chapter 11, verse 17 says, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves his flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye. His arm will be totally withered. His right eye will be blind. By the way, interesting, Zechariah 11, when he says, Woe to the worthless shepherd, the worthless shepherd he's talking about there, I believe, is Antichrist. The worthless shepherd. The one who will rise up to lead the world but will lead the world astray. Interesting. Let me read to you something about false shepherds. And this comes out of Ezekiel 34. Just listen to this for a minute. Through the prophet Ezekiel. Remember, Ezekiel was prophesying in Babylon. So this is after the captivity or or in the captivity of the Jewish people. And Ezekiel's there in Babylon and he writes, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd. They became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock, my flock, God says, wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over the surface of the earth and there was no one to seek or search for them. No one. And then 500 years later, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 says, Seeing the people, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus came on the scene. God said, woe to the worthless shepherd. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves and don't feed my flock. What happens when the shepherds stop feeding? Heresy fills the vacuum. It creeps in. And it can even come from among the shepherds themselves. Should we be concerned then about the shepherds at the bridge? No. No. But don't follow them blindly. Don't listen and go out thinking, well, that's just the way it is. Paul will say to Timothy, study to show yourself approved. A workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That's your responsibility. And it's mine. But shepherds and flock here at the bridge we all had best give ear to Paul's warning. Back in 1 Timothy. In fact, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. Paul says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words... Those of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, listen, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. 
That is, he's talking about personal gain. So if I'm godly, if I'm righteous, if, I, if I'm walking around with, with a Bible in my hand, it'll do something for me. It'll build me up. It'll make me look good. And that's the mentality of the heretic shepherd. And the one who is more concerned about himself and what he stands to gain than about feeding the flock of God. This is the shepherd who, who revels as a positional guru. This is one who loves and seeks after a following. Be aware. Be careful. For just as we only have one Savior and one hope, we follow one shepherd. The chief shepherd. And His name is Jesus, who said, I am the Good Shepherd, John 10, verse 11. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. I am the Good Shepherd. And I know my own. And Jesus says, My own know Me. Our eyes are fixed on Him. Look again at verse 4. Don't pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than the administration of God which is by faith. Listen, Christianity is not the latest novelty. What Paul raises here continues to be an issue even in the church today. Too many Christians are enticed by superficial speculation. We get excited about the latest thing. Ooh, the latest new idea. What's suddenly on the stage? This word is not the latest thing. This word is described as the ancient path. Walk the ancient path. Walk the ways that are tested and tried and true, that are across all history, words that are eternal. We are destroying, Paul says, speculations. 2 Corinthians 10.5 And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And that is the issue. Am I obedient to Jesus? doesn't matter what I think. doesn't matter how I feel. You know what? It doesn't even matter if I agree with God's Word. You ever disagree with Paul? You ever read Scripture and go, well, I don't think I like that very much. I think that's just a section that I'll just tear out of my Bible. I'll tell you what, it don't matter what you think. And we will, we will be face to face with the Lord and in that day, we'll know. We'll realize how foolish we all were. We'll recognize those those things that we just held to. Firmly held beliefs will realize were silliness. And that all that mattered in all of our speculations was the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is not the latest. And so this flashing red warning light comes on as he says, don't pay attention to these things. Man, if it tickles the ear... If it buzzes the mind, if it doesn't translate to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, walk away. You don't have to accept it. There is so much on the internet, so much that comes across YouTube, so many teachers, so many ideas out there. And even with the latest things happening in the stars, and we're going to talk about some of that in a couple of weeks. Don't pay attention to the speculations. Don't get all wrapped up in that. You get wrapped up in the Word of God. And you stay focused on Jesus Christ. Paul says all of these other things, they oppose the administration of God, which is by faith. The administration, the word is oikonomia. And oikonomia, it literally means stewardship. It's the management of a household. Read it that way. These things give rise to mere speculation rather than the management of the household of God which is by faith. There is a concern for God's house. And by the way, the management is of God Himself. He is the manager of the house. He's the one who has the administration of His household. Bad teaching is bad management. Heresy causes disorder and disarray in the house of God. Causes disunity. 
Tell you what, you know heresy very quickly when someone's teaching and it's upsetting folks. And it's bringing about division. And someone's saying something and it's upsetting this person over there or bothering this person over there. And Christians begin to side up and to divide with this camp and that camp. We saw it happen in Corinth. People choosing a side. I'm going to be of Paul. I'll be of Apollos. Well, I'm of Christ because you guys are all wrong. And they divided. Heresy divides. The truth brings people together. This church is proof of that. This fellowship has been brought together around the Word of God. It has, it's been remarkable. We had, we had some friends in town just this last weekend. Uh, Thursday and Friday in town from Virginia. We knew them back when we were in youth ministry out there in the early 90s. And they came to town and they were all asking all about the bridge and what happened. And they, and they just kept asking, what, what made, how did this all work? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know. It's the Word of God. The work of the Holy Spirit that unifies people around a central source of truth. And that's why we gather, isn't it? I mean, you're not here to hear me. Not here to hear Rachel lead worship. She does a good job, but that's not the thing. The thing is the truth. It's God's Word. And that's the management of His household. And whose household is it anyway? It's God's house. Would we usurp the Father's management because we think we know better? We have a better way? Are any of us more wise than He? Are we more interested in our own desires? Why does heresy happen in the first place? Simply because people would rather do what they want to do than what God wants them to do. We'd rather go our own way than God's way, and Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. And Paul is so serious about this, Timothy reading this letter is understanding how vital it is that he stand on truth and stand against heresy, which brings me to verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The goal of our instruction, literally, instruction is the word command. The goal of our command. Oh, by the way, did you notice how Paul began this letter? Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and Christ our hope. The commandment. That's interesting because usually Paul says an apostle by the will of God. But here he changes it to the commandment of God. Why? Because there's authority here. Paul is speaking with authority to give authority to Timothy and it is the authority of God over his household. And for the heretic, Paul is settling who is in charge. I come under the commandment of God. I bring the commandment of God. This commandment, this this goal of our commandment is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said, chapter 4, verse 5, We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. So here's the goal of our instruction. What is it? What's the goal? Listen, it's one word. Love. That's the subject of the sentence. Verse 5, For the goal of our instruction, the goal of our commandment, is love. Underscore that, circle it, put a box around it, put little stars, whatever you have to do. But the goal of the instruction of the Word of God, the single primary goal, is agape is unconditional love. The rest of the verse qualifies that statement. So what he's saying is the goal of our instruction is love, first of all, from a pure heart. Love from a pure heart. Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Boy, I'd love that. Anyone else here want to see God? I'd love to see God. I can't wait to see God. Some of you didn't raise your hand. You're like, well, not right now. (laughs) Oh, right now. Amen. Do you want to see God? There's only one way. You've got to have a pure heart. 
You see, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How do we get that? David prayed for it. Psalm 51.10 Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. The pure heart, listen, the pure heart is the heart of the redeemed. How can I have a pure heart before God? Believe in Jesus. And you are washed. You are purified. You're the redeemed. You have a pure heart. You will see God. That's the promise. No longer mixed or mingled or corrupted. The pure heart is the heart that that enables the single most authentic expression of Christian faith. And that is love. Love from a pure heart. How is it that I'm able to love people who rub me the wrong way? How is it that I'm able to love someone who annoys me? How is it that I'm able to show love even when I am not being loved in return? Love from a pure heart, a redeemed heart, the heart of one who has given their life over to Jesus Christ. Who said by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love from a pure heart. Secondly, love from a good conscience. And for Paul, that's more than simply a thought process. Paul uses the word conscience a lot in his writings. And for Paul, conscience is the quality of moral behavior. It's the morality of the conscience that is acted out then in our behavior. It's it's manifest in the things we do. A clear conscience is how my thoughts affect my actions. And so it's love from a good conscience. Love in action. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. But the goal of our instruction, Paul says, is love from a pure heart. It's love from a good conscience. And finally, it is love from a sincere faith. Please note this. Love from a sincere faith does not mean we're good Christian people. It does not mean we have a sincere religion. Love from a sincere faith doesn't mean that our faith is right and all the rest are wrong, though that may be true. Love from a sincere faith, a sincere faith is very simply trusting in Jesus. It is not your religion. It is your relationship that you have with Him. It is not our denominational distinctives. Love from a sincere faith. One of the things, and I'm sure I've said many times, I have labored over throughout the years is to express and to explain faith not as some kind of religious thing. That's how I looked at it my whole life. You talk about someone's faith, it's, oh, that's the church they go to. No! I have faith in my wife. There is a faith there, a faith relationship, a relationship of trust. That's what a sincere faith is. Someone who sincerely trusts in Jesus, who really believes in Jesus, who says, Lord Jesus, whatever is happening around me, I'm going to follow You. A sincere faith. It is a sincere faith in Jesus, believing Him, trusting in Him. And being in love with Him in that way, that cultivates Christ's love in us. That's the goal of our instruction. The love of God in us. The agape from a pure heart. The agape from a good conscience. And the agape that flows out of a sincere, trusting, loving relationship with Jesus. As we talk about these things over coming weeks, and we look at church organization which we will, and standards of faith and ministry, even as we consider heresy in these last days, remember this one truth. Love is the goal. Love is the goal. What's the goal? Love is the goal. So, how'd they do? How did the Ephesian church respond after receiving Timothy's teaching? Oh man, they drove out the heretics. They became intolerant of evil men. They tested false apostles and shepherds. 
They toiled, they persevered, they endured, and they did not grow weary. I know that because Jesus said that. But you know what else? They lost their first love. Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Thirty years later, Jesus had to send a letter to Ephesus where He extolled their intolerance of heretical teaching. Where He built them up and said, I see that you don't even tolerate false apostles, false teachers. You stand firm. You've done well, Ephesus. But, He says, Revelation 2.4, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand, that is His Holy Spirit, from out of its place, unless you repent. So all in all, without the love of Christ in us, for us, through us, it's just another brick in the wall. If the goal of our instruction is not love. Let's pray about that. Father, I can get all hot under the collar talking about heresy. I can get fired up talking about false teaching, Lord. And I can stand and get my back up and start shouting truth and getting all excited. And You remind me it's not about winning the argument. Oh, You remind us, Lord, it's not about being those who just happen to be right while everybody else is wrong. What good is that if it doesn't show Your love? Father, I pray that as we study these words of Paul, as we are forewarned about heresy, by looking at the truth of doctrine and looking at the the profound examples that You give us in Scripture, Oh, I pray, Father, that we will not lose our first love. And that in all these things, we will learn and we will understand that for all of our church doctrine, that love is the goal. And I pray, Father, You will increase our love first and foremost for You. Jesus, You said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And so we want to love you more. And I pray, Father, this fall, this season, such as it is and as long as we have, that as a fellowship and as individual people, we will love you more than we have ever loved you before. And I ask, Father, that as we love you more, our love for each other would increase all the more as well. For you said, Lord Jesus, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Father, our neighbors are right here among us. But our neighbors are also people who don't know you. Rebellious, lost, confused, ignorant. Father, help us to love like we love you. All those with whom we come in contact. And thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.